Well, it takes some study, it takes some diligence to be able to unpack some of the portions of Scripture that are prophetic, where God tells us about His plan for the future using imagery that is somewhat cryptic, somewhat foreign to us. And so it's important for us as those who honor the Word of God and who love the Word of God to put their requisite work into handling accurately the Word of Truth. And that is my goal as we come to Mark chapter 13 in your Bible. Please turn to Mark chapter 13. We have a whole chapter of red letters here, if you have a red letter Bible. It's the longest discourse of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Mark. And so as the Holy Spirit was leading Mark to put together for the church his account of the life and teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit thought it wise to give the largest amount of teaching in one section to the subject of the destruction of the temple and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power and glory. That when Jesus Christ appeared on the scene, there was a, a lot of expectation, a lot of messianic hope that the people of Israel had. They had studied the prophecies of Daniel. They had studied the prophecies of Isaiah. They had diligently searched out the prophetic scriptures to try to figure out what time and place God was indicating that the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, would come, and what would happen when he came. And yet, when Jesus came, the people did not recognize him, but rejected him, and things did not go the way that they thought they were going to go with the coming of Christ. And so, Mark chapter 13 is given to us in the Bible in order to inform the disciples of Jesus Christ what is happening and what is going to happen so that we can have proper expectations about where we are in the course of history as God works all things after the counsel of his will. Now, Mark chapter 13 is the Olivet Discourse in the Gospel. It takes place on the Mount of Olives. That's why it's called the Olivet Discourse. His discourse, while well, he sat on the mountain that is east of the Temple Mountain in Jerusalem, overlooking it. Now, the Olivet Discourse is in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew gives two chapters, Matthew 24 and 25, to this subject. Luke gives a whole chapter in Luke chapter 21. And then we have Mark's version here in chapter 13. So, because of the length of the discourse, because it is one of the only things that is in all three Gospels, you get the idea that this passage is of tremendous importance. And yet, it is a passage that has baffled and has some of the most difficult elements in it out of any passage in the entire Bible. And that's not an overstatement. Everyone agrees that the Olivet Discourse is probably the most difficult passage to understand and teach in all the Bible. And that's been my experience. It was a number of years ago that we spent four months going through the Olivet Discourse in Matthew. In January to April of 2018, we had a, a series just on the Olivet Discourse, and that was a lot of work, and I still don't understand it all. Um, that's going to be the work that's going to help me with Mark chapter 13, and I'm hoping to understand it even better as I take another run at this. Maybe someday I'll teach Luke chapter 21, and I'll get a third opportunity to teach the Olivet Discourse. But here, we're going to do a shorter look into the Olivet Discourse, 
not just because it's only one chapter compared to two, but also because if you really want the more in-depth look, I encourage you to go back and listen to the 12 or 13 part series that I did five years ago on Matthew 24 and 25, and that's on the website and on sermonaudio.com. And also, as part of this series, we're not going to do all of the review and preparation that we did with the Olivet Discourse. When I prepared to do the Olivet Discourse, we spent time looking into the book of Daniel, like we had in our scripture reading. I spent time reviewing much of the prophetic material in the book of Isaiah, which I preached a number of years ago, chapter by chapter, in the pulpit as well. And then we also went and looked at 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and all that Paul teaches concerning the coming of Christ and the day of the Lord. Well, we're not going to do all that this time. Today, we're on a mission to get through the Gospel of Mark, and so we're going to just kind of take the quick tour through the Olivet Discourse in two or three weeks. So, with that introduction, let's go ahead and get into the text. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 as I uh, put the outline up here for us. We're going to see how far we get. We might not get all the way to verse 13 this morning, as I said. We've got a lot going on today. So we're going to just kind of see what happens. I'm going to try to keep it brief. We're talking about the end of the temple here in Mark chapter 13. And I have a picture for you, the temple mount, as it would look today, with the dome of the rock there on the temple mount, and then the big plaza that is here. Some of the Wailing Wall, which would be on the other side here, I think, uh, a few of the remnants of the foundation of Herod's Temple in Jerusalem. Here we are 2,000 years after the coming of Jesus Christ, his visit to the Temple, and as Jesus is leaving the Temple, at the beginning of Mark chapter 13, he makes an astounding prediction about the future of this site that you see pictured here. Let's read verses 1 and 2 together. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now that is a shocking prediction and a shocking statement for a first century Jew. For Jesus' disciples, when they heard this, this was mind-blowing and earth-shattering prediction. Now, we live 2,000 years later. This is what we're used to. We're used to seeing the destruction, the remnants of the Temple Mount, and even an altar to a foreign god sitting on that Temple Mountain. So this is what we are used to, but this is not what they were used to. You've got to transfer yourself back now 2,000 years and think about the glory of Jerusalem and the glory of the temple in its own time. And I'll tell you, these pictures don't do it justice. We've got some models, some pictures of what Herod's temple would have looked like. And this is far less than its actual glory. Not only for size, you have the little tiny pictures here versus being there in person and seeing this magnificence. But also, just the splendor of the gold and the stones and, and all of that, this is, is not going to be paying it any proper justice. Let me tell you a little bit about Herod's temple. We call it Herod's temple because Herod the Great, the one who tried to kill the Christ child when he was still an infant, that Herod had begun, before the birth of Jesus Christ, a massive renovation and expansion of the second temple. The second temple was the temple that was built when the people of Israel returned 
from exile, their Babylonian exile. The Babylonians had destroyed Solomon's temple. There were 70 years of captivity according to God's word through the prophets. And then when they come back, Zerubbabel was the leader who helped to lay the foundation and begin the construction of the second temple. Now, Zerubbabel's temple was pretty meager, it was pretty small compared to the glory of Solomon's temple. They were not to be compared with one another. They didn't have the wealth, they didn't have the money, they didn't have the power to be able to, to rival what they had done during the days of Solomon. And so, Zerubbabel's temple stood throughout all of these centuries leading up to the time of Christ, but Herod, he began a massive renovation and expansion of the temple about 20 years before Christ. We know this because we have a number of historical sources that record it. And also, in the Gospel of John, chapter 2, we are told that during the early ministry of Jesus, the temple was in its 46th year of construction. So, by the time of the end of Jesus' ministry, we're coming up on about 50 years that the construction, the reconstruction, the expansion of the temple has been going on. This is a huge project, decades long, with all kinds of money being poured into it. And the final form of Herod's temple would not take place until 64 AD. The construction on the temple was not finished until 64 AD, a good 30 years after the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Now, to try to picture the temple of Herod, understand this, that this courtyard that you see here on the Temple Mount, that is no small courtyard. We're talking 500 yards by 300 yards. That's five football fields long and three football fields wide. This is a huge structure with huge stones forming this foundation and this base and the most beautiful and most glorious stones being used for the temple itself, with the inner court and then the temple proper there in the highest point of the temple. Now, Josephus is one of our sources for understanding how amazing and spectacular the temple was. So, don't look down too much on the disciple who says, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. This was, perhaps, the most marvelous structure in the world at that time. And I don't know if we have anything today that would compare to this. And so if you were there, you would be blown away. The Jewish people said, if you haven't seen the temple, you haven't seen a beautiful building. Now, they didn't like Herod much, and they didn't think much of Herod, but I'm sure they took great national pride in their temple as the wonder of the world. Josephus records for us that some of the stones that were used in the building were up to 60 feet long, 11 feet high, and 8 feet deep. Can you imagine moving a stone that weighed over 1 million pounds and fitting it into place in this temple structure? And there were many large stones. That might have been the largest one that he recorded. But the Temple Mountain was described as a mountain of marble decorated with gold. You picture that? A, a mountain of marble decorated with gold. Tremendous, beautiful, astounding. And so as they're going out of the temple, where Jesus has been spending the last few days debating with the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and teaching the people and saying things that were very entertaining but also very astounding, he saves his most shocking statement for right here in verse 2. 
Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The pride of Jerusalem, the temple of the living God on earth, the center of the worship of Jehovah, it's going to be completely demolished and annihilated. That's what Jesus says. I don't know what Jesus thought of the temple as far as Herod's involvement with it and how much it had been beautified. But I do know that God is not as impressed with buildings as we are. And I know that God is looking more at the heart. And I don't think Jesus was overly mournful about the destruction of the temple. But what he did mourn over was the destruction of the people. And as Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple, I want you to understand, this is not the first time he's talked about it, and it's not the only time. Turn with me to Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. Well, one more book back to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 19, we have the prediction of the destruction of the temple in another location in the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. As Jesus has his triumphal entry there in verses 28 through 40, which we also looked at in Mark's Gospel, he weeps over Jerusalem, starting in verse 41. When he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. To be able to understand the magnitude of Jesus' prediction here, you have to kind of put it in a contemporary setting. What if somebody made the prediction that Washington, D.C. was going to be so destroyed and so leveled that there wouldn't be one stone left upon another among all the monuments in Washington? You'd say, well, that would mean that there would be a, a tremendous change in the world. That would bring about a whole new order in the, the world that we live in. The most powerful city, the center of the administration and government of the leading nation in the world being completely destroyed. Well, that's what the Jews would have thought. Not because they were the most powerful, but because they were the heart of the worship of God in the world. Jerusalem was the city of God, which is more important than being the, the city of the United States. And so Jesus' statement about its destruction and the destruction of the temple was not only shocking, but it was also considered to be treasonous. If I would make the prediction that Washington, D.C. was going to be destroyed, well, then I might get a call from somebody in Washington, D.C. about it. They might consider that to be a treasonous statement. That's how the Jews felt about Jesus making this statement. Turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. Back to Mark chapter 14. We know that Jesus spoke about this on a number of occasions because it's brought up at his trial. John records that he made this prediction early on in his ministry. And here in his trial in Mark chapter 14, verse 58, this is one of the things that witnesses come forward to try to get a condemnation of Christ. It says, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. 
And so his prediction of the destruction of the temple was well known enough among the people that it would be brought as a charge against him at his trial. And this is thought to be a treasonous statement. This is actually history repeating. This is not new either. As I told you when we were going through Matthew 24, Jesus here is another Jeremiah. Jeremiah predicted the destruction of the temple in his time. And people of Jerusalem wanted to kill Jeremiah for predicting the destruction of the temple. They said, that's free. You deserve to die. And so, not only is this a shocking statement, but this is also considered to be a treasonous statement among the people of Israel. And so it's not surprising that his disciples would follow up with a question about them. What is this that you're talking about? When is this going to happen? How are we going to know when it's going to happen? Because this presages the end of the world. You're talking about the destruction of the temple. You're talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. This, this is like the end of the world for the Jewish mind. And so when they come and they ask him, in verses 3 and 4, go ahead and read Mark chapter 13, verses 3 and 4. So he goes out and he makes the prediction about the destruction of the temple. And, verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And the question is, well, what exactly is their question? Are they asking about the destruction of the temple? Are they asking about the destruction of Jerusalem? Are they anticipating that this has something to do with the, the final battle between good and evil? The end of this age and the coming of the new age? Well, yes, that does seem to be involved in their question. Because when you compare the way Mark records their question with the way Matthew records their question, you see that they are making this connection in their minds between Jesus' prediction of the destruction of the temple together with the coming of Christ in glory and power and the dawn of the new age. And so it seems to be a multiple-level question with a lot going into it. Now, before we get into the details of verses 3 and 4 and move on, I want to share with you some of the history of how Jesus' prediction of the destruction of the temple came about. We are indebted a lot to the writings of Josephus. War broke out within a generation of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In 66 AD, the popular sentiment against Rome rose so high that the Jewish people revolted against Roman rule, and the emperor sent his son with a large army to finally put the Jews down and to destroy any possibility of them ever rebelling in the future. Here's what Josephus writes about it, the destruction of the temple. In his account of the Jewish war, he says, the deity, God, Indeed, long since had sentenced the temple to the flames. But now, in the revolution of the years, had arrived the fated day, the tenth of the month of Lu, the Hebrew month of. As one must mourn for the most marvelous edifice which we have ever seen or heard of, yet may we draw very great consolation from the thought that there is no escape from faith for works of art and places any more than for living beings. And one may well marvel at the exactness of the cycle of destiny. For as I said, destiny waited until the very month and the very day on which in bygone times 
the temple had been burnt by the Babylonians. Now we are told by Josephus that the Romans did not intend to completely destroy the temple. It was such an amazing building, it was such a, a wonderful edifice, I, I think they probably intended to repurpose it. But that was not God's purpose. God did not want the temple to be repurposed for the worship of any Caesar or any false god. And the prophecy of Jesus Christ had to come true. And so the temple must, as Josephus said, by fate and by divine decree, be destroyed. And there's some differences in accounts as to how exactly it played out. Let me read for you what Josephus said about how the temple finally was destroyed in the siege of Jerusalem. A Roman soldier took a torch and threw it against the beautiful tapestries that Herod had made for the temple and that hung along its walls. When they caught fire, the Romans attempted to put it out, but there was not sufficient water. Somehow the fire was so intense that even the stone took hold and the building collapsed. The Talmud says that it burned not only on the late afternoon of the ninth of the month of Av, but the entire day of the tenth as well. It was just a raging conflagration. They were unable to put out the fire, and the entire temple burned, along with thousands of Jews, according to Josephus. Many of the distraught defenders of Jerusalem jumped into the flames, feeling that if the temple was going up in flames, then the Jewish people should go up in flames as well. In a book by Simon Sebag Montefiore in 2012, he tells the story this way from his research. On the 8th of the Jewish month of Av, in late July, A.D. 70, the Roman emperor Vespasian's son, who was in command of the four-month siege of Jerusalem, ordered his entire army to prepare to storm the temple at dawn. The Romans had built ramps against the walls of the temple, but their assaults had failed. Earlier that day, Titus told his generals that his efforts to preserve this foreign temple were costing him too many soldiers, so he ordered the temple gates to be set alight. The silver of the gates melted and spread the fire to the wooden doorways and windows, thence to the wooden fittings in the passageways of the temple itself. Titus ordered the fire to be quenched. The Romans, he declared, should not avenge themselves on inanimate objects instead of men. Then he retired for the night into his headquarters. But the fire could not be quenched. And the temple, along with everyone who was taking refuge within it, were burned and destroyed. After the destruction of the temple, Titus decided that everything might as well go, and he leveled the city to such an extent that Josephus says that he went to Jerusalem after Titus was done with it, you wouldn't know that anyone had ever lived there. So the disciples, they are asking, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? This is in response to Jesus' prediction of the destruction of the temple. And so we would expect, as we read Jesus' answer throughout the rest of the chapter, that that's what he's going to do. He's going to tell his disciples when is the temple going to be destroyed, and what signs are going to lead up to the destruction of the temple. And yet, while that is one way you can read Mark chapter 13... There are things that Jesus says in his reply that do not seem to fit with what happened in history. For example, come down to Mark chapter 13, verse 24. In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And he said in verse 28, From the fig tree learn its lesson. 
As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. And verse 30 is the cleanser. Verse 30 is the verse that we all scratch our heads over and say, what in the world does this mean and how does it fit with what actually happened in history? Jesus said, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So there's two things that are going on here in Mark chapter 13 that you, you really need to understand. Number one, we have a most amazing prediction from Jesus of Nazareth about the destruction of Jerusalem, about the destruction of the temple, that has happened in history, and that verify that Jesus was a true prophet who spoke words from God because what he said came to pass. But, not only does Mark chapter 13 and the other instances of the Olivet Discourse provide such powerful evidence for the prophetic office of the Lord Jesus Christ, it also provides the critic of the Bible, the opponent of the Lord Jesus Christ, with his most powerful tool to discredit the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no verse that is more used to discredit Christ as a prophet than Mark chapter 13, verse 30. Truly I say to you, Jesus said, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And you look back at what I read. He said they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. That God will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the, the ends of the earth to the, the, to the heaven. Did that happen in the first century? Within the generation of those who were listening to Jesus Christ speak? No, it didn't. So what do we do with that? Here we have amazing proof of the predictive truthfulness of Jesus Christ, and we have what seems to be pretty strong proof that he was wrong, and that his prophecy did not come to pass. Well, that is the difficulty of Mark chapter 13, Matthew chapter 24, and also, to a lesser extent, Luke chapter 20. C.S. Lewis called Mark chapter 13, verse 30, the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. R.C. Sproul said this is the most weighty problem we have in the New Testament. It's important for us to understand the depth of the problem before we accept the solution to the problem. It's easy sometimes for us just to pass over the problem and to accept an easy solution because we want to believe that the Bible is true and that Jesus Christ is a prophet who spoke inerrantly. But to be honest, to be faithful, to be true, you have to recognize the depth of this problem. I don't think anyone has got it all figured out yet. And yet, I believe that Jesus spoke the truth. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that Mark chapter 13, verse 30 is not an error. How it's not an error? I'm not exactly sure. But I have some ideas. And other faithful men, like R.C. Sproul, have some similar ideas. And hopefully we're going in the right direction, and we will understand it more by and by. 
Did those who come before Christ understand everything about how prophetic scripture was going to work out and how it was being fulfilled and what God meant by everything that he said? No, they didn't. Sometimes you have to wait until the prophecy comes to pass in order to be able to understand what exactly God meant. There are some things in scripture that are difficult to understand, and this is probably the most difficult to understand. So don't expect me to have an easy answer. There's no easy answer for the most difficult problem. Now, let's take a little bit of time to explain the key to understanding the Olivet Discourse. How do we get at this? The key to the Olivet Discourse, this is the same key that I gave you when we were in Matthew chapter 24. I don't think it's changed. I'm still on this track. I still think this is the right way to come at this. The key to understanding the Olivet Discourse is that when you read Mark chapter 13 or Matthew 24 or Luke chapter 20, some of the things that Jesus says refer to first century events. The destruction of the temple in 70 AD and everything that took place from the resurrection of Christ up until 70 AD. However, at the same time, Jesus is mixing in with the things that he's describing in the first century, with things that are going to take place in the last generation that is here before the end of this age and the coming of Christ in his kingdom and in his glory. So, the Olivet Discourse is functioning on two levels. The way that I put it here is that the attack on Jerusalem in 70 AD could have been the end of the age. And the parousia, that is the technical word for the coming, the presence of God coming from heaven, the Son of Man, it could have been if the people of Israel had repented and believed in Yeshua, that is Jesus, as their Mashiach, their, their Christ, the Son of God. That when we're dealing with Bible prophecy, it shouldn't surprise us that it's functioning on multiple levels and that there's complexity. Because... God has enemies, and any time you're going to be dealing with what you're going to do and making known what your plan is, you have to be careful not to give too much information to your enemies while giving the right amount of information to your friends and what they're able to handle. And so when God tells the future, he does so sometimes in a dark way, a shadowy way, so that we get what we're supposed to get, but that the enemy doesn't intercept what God doesn't want the enemy to get. Does that make sense to you? This is what you know, spies do. They have to send communication. When kids have been playing a game where you have to send communication to your teammates without letting the enemy know exactly everything. And so everything's not always plain in that type of communication. You kind of have to speak in code. You kind of have to speak in riddles in some ways. And so in the... Code, I know that, that word is loaded, so I, I hesitate to use it. It's been abused when talking about Bible. But there's a certain hiddenness to what God says, and then there's something that is revealed at the right time in the right place. You see, when Jesus Christ was giving the Olivet Discourse, he was speaking to disciples who have not had the benefit of the last 2,000 years of history that you have. They were expecting that Christ was going to, well, if he had to die, that he would rise like he said, and then he immediately set up the kingdom. And so when they hear that there's going to be the destruction of the temple, they're like, well, how does that fit in with you being the Messiah, and the Messiah is supposed to come and save the people of Israel, but if the people of Israel are so destroyed that the temple is burned down and there's nothing left of Jerusalem, that doesn't seem like the part of the plan. And so God is 
letting the disciples in on what is the next stage of the plan. Now, you already know that because you've lived the last 2,000 years, but they didn't know that. This was new information for them. Now, the information for them was not only helpful in their situation, but Jesus, in his wisdom as the Son of God, knew that the Bible was not just going to be written for that first generation of Christians living in the first century of the church, but that there was a plan in God for the gospel to go to all nations, and that there was actually going to be a pretty long delay between the resurrection of Christ and the establishing of the eternal kingdom. And so, he speaks in a way that will benefit the first century Christians, but will also benefit you, who are living here at the very end of the last days. And that's why there's multiple levels, because God is speaking to multiple generations. You see how that works? Scripture has to be relevant in its own time, but then God also has to speak in a way that is relevant to all of the future generations that he has planned to be fed and to be informed by that word, by that scripture. I think that helps understand and explain why there are things here in Mark chapter 13 that are not obvious, that seem somewhat confused and complex. Remember, when God gives us prophecy... He often will give short-term prophecies in order to prove that the prophet is truly from God. He'll give mid-term prophecies so that the generations that come afterwards can look back and know that what writings and what teaching that prophet has left behind are relevant and important for them and are verified by the prophecies that are taking place in their time. And then he'll give long-term prophecies so that far-distant generations will be able to look back let me give you an example from the book of Daniel. So in the book of Daniel, you've got the writing on the wall. Daniel says, God has spoken, tekel, tekel, parson, uh, I think I left that one, many. And that prophecy was fulfilled that night. And so people would know, well, Daniel's a prophet, because he, he could predict, he could read the, the prophecy that came from God, the writing on the wall. And people in his own generation would say, well, here is a man who gets revelation from God. Just like he interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream. There's those short-term prophecies. But then there's the mid-term prophecies. So the people who come a generation after Daniel, they're able to look back and say, well, that wasn't just a fairy tale. It wasn't just a story that was made up about Daniel, because Daniel left writings that talk about how the kingdom of the Babylonians was going to be taken over by the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, and how their kingdom was going to be taken over by the Greeks, and that there's a fourth kingdom coming after that. And so they could look back in history and see all that happen, and they're like, look, Daniel's a prophet. But for us, now living thousands of years after Daniel... Well, what do the scholars say about Daniel now, the unbelievers? Well, they say, well, Daniel's book wasn't written by some guy named Daniel all the way back in the time of Babylon, but it was written by some Jew living after all these events had taken place. And so he already knew about the Medes and the Persians. He already knew about the wars that took place between Alexander the Great's different parts of the empire. And he wrote it down like it was prophecy, but, you know, it was written after the fact. And that's why God includes in the book of Daniel things that are long-term prophecies that confirm that he's a prophet no matter how you look at it, no matter what time you look at it, you can see the prophecy of the 70 weeks of Daniel, that God predicted the time that Jesus Christ was going to come. 483 years after the decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem would come Messiah, and that's exactly what happened. In 445 B.C., Artaxerxes decreed that Jerusalem would be rebuilt and restored. 483 years later, Christ comes. And so, 
How are you going to deny that, critics? How are you going to say that Daniel's not a prophet, that he's writing after the event, because we've got copies of the book of Daniel about the prophecy of the 70 weeks that predate Jesus Christ by over 100 years. And so God gives these different levels of prophecy within one book in order to authenticate the prophet with the short-term, the mid-term, and the long-range prophecies. And so Jesus Christ is confirmed in his own time in the first century by his prediction that his prophecies concerning the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. And yet, he wants to give prophecies that are going to relate to something that is far distant from that time, and yet he can't let people know in the first century that there is this great distance. Because it is God's will, it is God's desire that the church always be expectant and ready for Christ to come back. Now, if Christ just came out in the Olivet Discourse and said, well, the temple's going to be destroyed in the first century, but then there's going to be 20 more centuries of church history after that, then the church wouldn't be expecting and waiting for Christ to come back, which is how we're supposed to be living. And so God has to say things in a certain way because of the complexities of the situation. We need to be fair to the prophecies of Scripture and not be overly critical, but understand all that God is dealing with when he tells us the future. Not only people, but also Satan. I mean, how do you tell your enemy what your plan is without him ruining your plan? Uh, so God has to be very wise in how he puts it together, and he is. And that's why it seems difficult to us, because we don't know everything God does, and we don't see everything the way that God does. And we're just in our own little time with our limited perspective and understanding. And yet, even with our limited understanding and our limited perspective, the Word of God in the Olivet Discourse is extremely important. You don't have to understand it all in order for this to really impact your heart and your life. The Olivet Discourse in Mark chapter 13 has, I think, 19 commands. There are 19 commands in this chapter. So he's not just telling the future. He's telling you what you're supposed to do while you wait for the end of the age and the coming of Christ. What's it going to be like? What is our responsibility? What are the problems and the threats that we're going to face? How are we supposed to live? That's what Mark chapter 13 is about. And as you read through Mark chapter 13, if you're a first century Christian, it tells you, this is what I'm going to expect. This is what's going to happen. This is how I should live. These are the threats that I'm going to face. And if you read Mark chapter 13 as a 21st century Christian, you get an idea. This is how life is. This is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. These are the threats that I'm going to face. This is how Christ wants me to respond. It's amazing. It's awesome. And that's why I believe Mark chapter 13, even though I don't understand everything in Mark chapter 13. Belief comes first. Understanding will follow. God has proven himself well enough that we should not stumble over Mark chapter 13 verse 30. Anyone who does stumble over Mark chapter 13, verse 30, is willfully ignoring the rest of the Bible and just delights in finding something that he can stumble over. He wants to stumble over Mark 13, 30. Now, I agree that Mark 13, 30 is difficult. I, I don't like it. But who cares what I like? All right. Well, I think that's most of what I wanted to get across this morning. I have another five pages of notes here, but we'll save that <laughs> for next week. And we'll start to dig more into Jesus' response to the question. And Jesus began to say to them in verse 5. And that's where we'll pick it up and we'll see what did Christ say to those disciples and how is that relevant to us 
now, all of these centuries later. 